In three major victories for the rule of law and the Constitution, the Supreme Court put an end to the use of race in college admissions, canceled Joe Biden's student debt cancellation scheme, and affirmed that the state of Colorado cannot force a Christian website designer to communicate messages that contradict her faith. Today, I'll tell you everything you need to know about these landmark rulings, and also analyze the dangerous pseudo-jurisprudence underlying the dissenting opinions in each case. Plus, a Minnesota church recites a new blasphemous sparkle creed, the legacy media complains about racist wildfire smoke, and Bud Light can now be found at prices cheaper than water. I'm Doug Wardlow, and this is Founding Principles. It is time to go on offense. This is Founding Principles with Doug Wardlow. The Supreme Court delivered three huge victories for free speech, equal protection of the law, and the separation of powers. In each case, the court stood up for the original meaning of the language of the Constitution. Each case was decided with six justices in the majority and three justices dissenting, revealing a stark contrast between the justices who actually believe in traditional jurisprudence, where judges apply the law to the facts before them, and the wacky pseudo-jurisprudence of the far left, where judges view the law as a flexible tool that can be changed at will to incorporate the judges' personal and political views and values. Considered together, the dissents in each case showcase just how horrible and tyrannical a Supreme Court consisting of five or more far-left justices would be. But first, I'll discuss each case in turn. Then, I'll offer my thoughts on what all these cases considered together mean for the Constitution and the long-term prospects for freedom and the rule of law in America. You're not going to get this kind of analysis anywhere else, so be sure to watch through the entire episode to the end. So, without further, further ado, let's dive into the first case. Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and the University of North Carolina. By a vote of 6-3, to three, the justices ruled that the University of North Carolina and Harvard College violated the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the court and joined by Justices Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, spends the first portion of the opinion tracing the history of equal protection jurisprudence, starting, of course, with the enactment of the Equal Protection Clause itself. Proposed by Congress and ratified by the states in the wake of the Civil War, the 14th Amendment provides that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. Roberts explains that the Equal Protection Clause was described by those who originally proposed it as, quote, not permitting any distinction of law based on race or color. Roberts then traces the history of the deplorable doctrine of separate but equal under Plessy v. Ferguson that allowed discrimination to deface a large portion of the country for half a century until finally the original understanding and the truth of the 14th Amendment reemerged. That is, separate cannot be equal. And so Plessy was overruled in Brown v. Board of Education, where the court held unequivocally that racial discrimination in public education is unconstitutional under the original meaning of the Equal Protection Clause. Soon thereafter, the principles of non-discrimination were extended to many other areas of public life, affirming the principle that, as Robert puts it, quote, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Any exception to the Constitution's equal protection requirement must withstand the very daunting, difficult-to-pass test of strict scrutiny. That is, a racial classification cannot survive an Equal Protection Clause challenge unless the racial classification both furthers a compelling government interest and is absolutely necessary to achieve that compelling interest. Roberts observes that both UNC and Harvard consider race as part of their admissions process in order to advance goals that are in and of themselves commendable. For example, training future leaders, acquiring new knowledge based on diverse outlooks, promoting a robust marketplace of ideas, and preparing engaged and productive citizens. But these commendable goals are not sufficiently coherent for purposes of strict scrutiny. They can't be measured. And even if they could be measured, it's not possible to know when the goals have been achieved so that racial preferences can end. 
Because they can't be measured and are not sufficiently coherent, the goals are not compelling interests that can justify the use of a racial classification. Roberts further points out that the school's race-based admissions programs fail to show any meaningful connection between the means they employ, that is, racial classifications, and the goals they are pursuing. The racial categories used are arbitrary. There are categories for some racial groups and not others. Robert writes that, quote, courts may not license separate, separating students on the basis of race without an exceedingly persuasive justification that is measurable and concrete enough to permit judicial review. Roberts, writing for the court, further notes that the admissions programs require racial stereotyping, which the court expressly forbade in the Grutter versus Bollinger decision, which limited the use of race in admissions but allowed it to continue while noting that its use must eventually come to an end, perhaps after 25 years. When a university admits students on the basis of race, it is assuming that students of a particular race think the same way because of their race. And that is an offensive assumption that is contrary to the core purpose of the Equal Protection Clause. Moreover, the court concluded that the use of race in Harvard's and UNC's admissions programs is unconstitutional because it lacks a logical endpoint as required in the Grutter decision. Indeed, the decision in this case effectively overrules Grutter. Now, race may only be considered in terms of, quote, an applicant's discussion of how race affected his life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. Race-conscious admission programs like the ones used by Harvard and UNC, however, those are unconstitutional. Such programs, Robert writes, quote, conclude wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. So, it is very clear that the court's opinion is solid and well-reasoned, grounded entirely and squarely on the original meaning and understanding of the Equal Protection Clause. Distinctions based on race have absolutely no place in law. No longer will applicants be, not be denied the opportunity to attend an elite institution simply because they are a member of a currently disfavored race, as Justice Thomas puts it in his excellent and eloquent concurring opinion. But that's not how the court's three leftist judges see things. Not at all. Justice Jackson's dissenting opinion, for example, focuses on the historical subjugation of black Americans. According to her, America is irredeemably racist and the sins of slavery and Jim Crow make it impossible for black Americans to succeed in our society without actively leveling the playing field and redistributing resources on the basis of race. Her dissent focuses on statistical disparities between racial groups as evidence of her view that just about everything in a person's life is attributable to the color of a person's skin. Justice Jackson believes that courts should defer to experts like the ones at institutions such as Harvard who can determine how best to discriminate based on race in order to level the playing field. And just, as Justice Thomas points out in his concurring opinion, Justice Jackson's dissent is a, quote, call to all to empower privileged elites who will tell us what is required to level the playing field among castes and classifications that they alone can divine. Justice Thomas continues, quote, then after siloing all of us into racial castes and pitting those castes against each other, the dissent somehow believes that we'll be able to, at some undefined point, march forward together into some utopian vision. Social movements that invoke these sorts of rallying cries historically have ended disastrously, close quote. How right Justice Thomas is. Government-imposed systemic racism cannot be an antidote to the ills of racism in society. It only creates more innocent victims and more injustice. And it is forbidden by the text of the Constitution, which Justice Jackson and her two leftist colleagues on the Supreme Court bench entirely ignore. And that brings us to the second in the trio of big Supreme Court victories last month. 303 Creative versus Alanis. In that case, six justices, again, Gorsuch, Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, 
determined that the First Amendment's free speech clause bars the enforcement of a state anti-discrimination law against a Christian website designer who does not want to create wedding websites for a same-sex wedding when doing so would go against her beliefs. Justice Gorsuch, writing the opinion of the court, explained that, the, that Colorado cannot, quote, force an individual to speak in ways that align with its views, but defy her conscience about a matter of major significance, close quote. In this case, plaintiff Lori Smith, a devout Christian who owns a website and graphic design business in Littleton, Colorado, wanted to expand her business to include wedding websites, but she didn't want to violate her sincerely held religious beliefs by participating in the celebration and promotion of a wedding ceremony contrary to her faith. She went to federal court to obtain a ruling that enforcing Colorado's anti-discrimination law against her would violate her First Amendment right to freedom of speech, and she won. In Gorsuch's majority opinion, he observes that creating a website is clearly expressive activity. Indeed, Colorado and Smith agreed on that point. And that means that the First Amendment's protection of free speech applies in full force. The court reasoned that if Smith wants to speak, she must choose between following her conscience and violating Colorado law or following the law and violating her religious beliefs. Under the Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence, Gorsuch concluded, that is enough, more than enough, to represent an impermissible abridgment of the First Amendment's right to speak freely. Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF, an outstanding Christian public interest law firm where I was proud to serve as legal counsel for several years, represented Smith and hailed Friday's decision. ADF President and CEO Kristen Wagoner observed that the court, quote, rightly reaffirmed that the government can't force Americans to say things they don't believe. She continued, quote, disagreement isn't discrimination, and the government can't mislabel speech as discrimination to censor it. She's exactly right. And that's where the three leftist dissenting judges go wrong. They would allow the government to compel anyone who accepts a commission to create expression or to speak to accept all commissions on that topic, no matter what message is being spoken, whenever the topic implicates a statutorily protected trait, in this case, sexual orientation. But as Gorsuch points out, that would allow the government to put the label of discrimination on the speech and expression of all manner of artists and speechwriters, forcing them to either speak what they don't believe or face a government-imposed penalty. The original meaning of the First Amendment simply doesn't allow that. Colorado can have and enforce its anti-discrimination laws, certainly, but when those laws contravene the constitutional rights of the people, then the Constitution, the supreme law of the land, must take precedence. In the words of Justice Gorsuch, quote, The First Amendment envisions the United States as a rich and complex place where all persons are free to think and speak as they wish, not as the government demands. Finally, in the third of the trio of huge Supreme Court victories for the Constitution and the rule of law, the Supreme Court on a 6-3 vote struck down President Biden's student loan admissions program. The name of the case is Biden versus Nebraska, and the implications of this case go far, far beyond Joe Biden's ludicrous $430 billion scheme to cancel student debts. Had the Supreme Court failed to get this one right, it would have basically meant that there are no effective checks on presidential or executive authority going forward. It would have severely damaged Congress's ability to control the nation's finances, and it would have amounted to a huge transfer of power from the people's elected representatives to the president and the army of unelected bureaucrats, bureaucrats that make up the administrative state. So there was a lot riding on the outcome of this case. Thankfully, the Supreme Court got it right. Justice Roberts, writing the opinion for the court, explained that under the HEROES Act, the Education Secretary can, quote, waive or modify statutory or regulatory provisions for the purposes of preventing borrowers from falling into a worse position with respect to their student loans as a result of a national emergency. But, Roberts explained, Congress's use of the word modify means that the Secretary of Education can make quote, modest adjustments and additions to existing provisions, not transform them. The insanely huge Biden debt cancellation plan, quote, created a novel and fundamentally different loan forgiveness program. The plan modifies the student loan laws, Roberts wrote, 
quote, only in the same sense that the French Revolution modified the status of the French nobility. It has abolished them and supplanted them with a new regime entirely. The question here, Roberts wrote, is not whether something should be done. It is who has the authority to do it. That's exactly correct. The Constitution gives the power to determine whether something should be done, that is, whether a law to do something should be passed, to Congress, not the president or his administration. And that's why Roberts' opinion invokes the major questions doctrine, which is a key separation of powers doctrine that provides that if Congress wants a statute to give an administrative agency the power to make decisions of enormous economic or political significance, then the statute must say so very clearly. The doctrine is sort of a safeguard to ensure that the original meaning of the text of of a statute or the Constitution is not violated by an administrative agency that wants to enact vastly significant policy choices on its own. In this case, the language of the statute doesn't authorize Biden's debt cancellation scheme at all, let alone clearly. Of course, the three leftists of the court, Kagan, Jackson, and Sotomayor, joined a dissent penned by Justice Kagan. The dissent is notable for the vehemence of its attack on the majority opinion of the court. It claims that the court has substituted its judgment for that of Congress by negating Congress's broad delegation of authority to the Secretary of Education to grant student loan relief. Well, that's absurd, of course. It's exactly backwards. The majority of the court held that the statutory text clearly does not delegate authority to the president and his administration to unilaterally cancel nearly half a trillion dollars in student debt. Indeed, had Congress attempted to delegate authority so broad that it could encompass the creation of a huge debt cancellation scheme out of whole cloth, that would have been an unconstitutional delegation of legislative authority to the executive branch. The Constitution requires that only Congress exercise the power to make laws. Congress can't just give its lawmaking power to the president. And if Congress tries to do that, well, that violates the Constitution's separation of powers and must be struck down as unconstitutional by the court. But once again, showing their total disrespect for our system of government and their apparent preference for unilateral authoritarian rule, the dissenting leftist judges opined that the words of the HEROES Act should be stretched and twisted so that President Biden doesn't have to go to Congress to erase $430 billion of debt owed to the federal government. Well, let's consider briefly the history of the HEROES Act. As the dissent itself points out, in 1991 and again in 2002, Congress authorized the Secretary of Education to grant student loan relief to borrowers affected by two specific wars. The first one was the Persian Gulf War. Congress passed a statute giving the Education Secretary the power to, quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision relating to student loan programs in order to assist the men and women serving on active duty in connection with Operation Desert Storm. Then, after our country was despicably and horribly attacked on September 11th by Islamist fundamentalist terrorists, Congress passed a law giving the Secretary of Education the authority to, quote, waive or modify any student loan provision to help borrowers affected by the September 11th national emergency. In 2003, Congress apparently decided that it didn't want to pass a separate law for each emergency or war that arose, so it passed the HEROES Act. Instead of specifying a particular crisis, the statute enables the Secretary to act, quote, as he deems necessary in connection with any military operation or national emergency by waiving or modifying any statutory or regulatory provision relating to federal student loan programs in order to assist borrowers affected by that war or emergency. Well, that's all pretty straightforward. But the the dissent goes on to reason that the COVID so-called pandemic, which was declared a national emergency, means that the Secretary of Education can go ahead and completely eliminate $430 billion of student debt. That's far, far beyond waiving or modifying a few statutory provisions in order to make sure borrowers are not worse off in terms of loan repayment due to the national emergency. And it impacts all borrowers, regardless of their situation or whether they were actually affected by COVID. Indeed, the dissent criticizes the majority opinion for its clear holding that the creation of any novel and fundamentally different loan program, forgiveness program is off the table. Apparently, the dissenting justices think that the president and his administration 
should be able to take the slimmest read of congressional authority and transform it into whatever is necessary to accomplish whatever it is that the president wants to do, as if the president is our emperor and supreme leader. Well, thankfully, that's not how our government works. And thankfully, the six justices in the majority on each of these three important cases applied the law and the Constitution according to their original meaning. They defended the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection of the law to all persons regardless of race, its guarantee of freedom of speech, and the separation of powers that keeps tyranny at bay. But consider for a moment the three leftist dissenters and how they would have ruled in each of these three cases were they in the majority. They would have effectively nullified Brown versus Board of Education and the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection, instead, of, instead promoting race-based classifications that create injustice, create victims, and are anathema to everything our country stands for. They would have allowed states like Colorado to force Christian artists, speechwriters, movie directors, and website creators to either speak messages that contradict their Christian beliefs or be penalized by the government, all in the name of promoting the state-sponsored religion of LGBT activism. And they would have allowed President Biden to completely ignore Congress and act unilaterally without any input from the people's elected representatives to cancel nearly half a trillion dollars of student loan debt owed to the federal government, effectively stealing Congress's exclusive power of appropriation and opening the door to unlimited executive authority going forward. In short, they view the law as a tool and nothing more. When the law or the Constitution aids their political agenda, well, they'll, they'll enforce it to its letter. But whenever the law gets in the way of their political agenda, they will twist it to fit their agenda or simply ignore it entirely. It is ironic that so many Democrats in Congress are up in arms over these rulings, even to the point of advocating the addition of more justices to the court so they can pack it with leftists. In so doing, they would transform the court into an entirely political body and a super legislator, undermining their own constitutional power to make laws as members of Congress. But they don't care about the separation of powers or the institution of Congress or the rule of law. They only care about seeing that their agenda is pushed through by any means necessary. They want to tear down this country and build an authoritarian socialist regime in its place, one where they would no doubt position themselves as among our enlightened guardians and rulers, lording it over us who, who they view as deplorable peasants. And that is why this next presidential election is so very important. We must not add leftists to the federal bench, and especially not to the Supreme Court. We can now, we can discuss how the Supreme Court might need to be reformed to encourage justices to make rulings that stick to the original meaning of the text of the laws and the Constitution. And certainly, judicial supremacy has gotten a bit out of control. But right now, the high court is acting as a bulwark against the leftists who want to shred the Constitution and abandon the rule of law itself. We cannot afford to lose it. Well, if you like the content that we are providing, please subscribe to our channel, like the video, drop a comment down in the comment sections. If you're, if you're listening to the audio podcast, give us a five-star rating. Doing each of those things helps us tremendously. Now on to behind the headlines. First up today, Minnesota is back in the news again, unfortunately. A Lutheran church in suburban Edina went viral when a female pastor there recited what she called the Sparkle Creed with the congregants. No, I'm not joking. The Sparkle Creed includes false, misleading, and nonsensical statements, such as the statement that, is go that God is non-binary, that his pronouns are plural, and that Jesus had two dads, and that love is love, whatever that means. You can look up the words to the Sparkle Creed if you like, although it will almost certainly infuriate you. Now, when we Christians gather together and confess the words of the ecumenical creeds, we are professing the one true faith in front of God and everyone around us. They are ancient creedal statements that testify to the true character of God himself, and the core beliefs of Christianity that stretch all the way back to Jesus' resurrection and the foundation of the church. The Sparkle Creed, on the other hand, was made to support the LGBT agenda. 
Its purpose isn't to serve God, it's to serve man and the ridiculous pride movement. It's laughable to call this church Lutheran in any meaningful way. Indeed, it's ridiculous to even call it a church if they're professing this blasphemous creed. If Martin Luther were alive today, who would condemn this ludicrous and blasphemous sparkle creed, the so-called church that invented it, and the church's pastor in the strongest terms possible? Unfortunately, many church leaders have decided to take the path of least resistance and try to adapt to the world rather than lead with the gospel. It's easy to simply echo what's popular, but that's not leadership. It's not truth, and it's leading people astray. Conservative Christians need to stand up as leaders in the church, boldly profess truth, truth, stand against every element of the culture that militates against truth and the gospel, make disciples of all people, and keep Jesus at the center of everything. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. Recent headlines across the nation dumbfounded millions of Americans. Multiple publications, when reporting on the Canadian wildfires, decided to use a headline similar to Smoke from Canada wildfires is increasing health risks in black and poor U.S. communities. What the heck? Smoke from fires can now be racist and discriminatory? The wind discriminates on the basis of race? The articles generally go on to explain the headline by stating that black Americans tend to live closer to polluting sites that lead to higher rates of black Americans suffering from asthma, and so then they're more affected by wildfire smoke. Well, if we take that at face value and assume that they aren't lying, that's sad. The point is, why write a headline like that? Why write a story focusing on the racial disparity of the impact of wildfire smoke? If you simply read the headline, you might think that the smoke is discriminating. But what's the point of this? Well, whether they admit it or not, the headlines are meant to be inflammatory. Such a headline is meant to perpetuate the leftist false narrative that our lives are entirely determined by race. All bad things and all good things, the narrative goes, can be ascribed to the color of a person's skin. And that false narrative breeds division, resentment, and hostility among people. It leads people to question the foundations of our country and pushes forward the left's goal to tear this country down. Racism is wrong because we are all made in the image and likeness of God. We are all fallen, sinful creatures who need redemption through the cross of Christ. It's a beautiful beautiful fact of life that our God cares about all of us, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, every single one, all of us equally. Racism has existed and will continue to exist until we are on the other side of this world. It's a sad part of our fallen world. Was slavery terrible? Of, of course it was. That's why we celebrate its defeat in the Civil War. We celebrate Brown versus Board of Education. We celebrate the great strides black Americans have made in this country. Are there individual racists? Of course. But today, a black kid can work hard and achieve just the same as a white kid or any other color of kid. Race shouldn't matter so much to folks. It's something we shouldn't talk about all that much because it shouldn't really be relevant. Stop seeing each other as white or black or Asian or what have you, and let's just see each other as countrymen, citizens, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, teachers, lawyers, truck drivers, farmers, doctors, engineers, and people doing their best to use the talents God has given them to create a better life for themselves and their families. Let's just see each other as Americans. Third third and finally today, according to a new Daily Wire report, Bud Light is now cheaper than water, at least in one Pennsylvania store, that is. So maybe it's not cheaper than water everywhere, but Anheuser-Busch is certainly still feeling, feeling the effect of the conservative boycott. I've talked about this quite a bit, and you might be wondering why this issue is in the conservative media so much. I'll tell you. It's important we keep spreading the word and keep up the boycott. Why is that? Allow me to explain. We cannot give our dollars solely to conservative businesses. It's just not feasible right now. Too many conservatives abandoned cultural fights and corporations responded to the leftward lurch our country has taken. So while we can't realistically take away our business from every woke company, we can send a clear and convincing blow to a chosen few. We can make examples of the worst offenders. Enter Anheuser-Busch and Bud Light. 
It's less about Bud Light specifically and more about what they stand for. The Dylan Mulvaney stuff? It was Bud Light saying, we know you won't do anything about this. We can do whatever we want. What this boycott tells not just Bud Light, but every woke company is this. Conservatives can and will mobilize and hurt your bottom line if you keep shoving this garbage down our throats. And your ridiculous wokeism is actually helping many Americans realize that they are in fact conservatives. Can we and should we support conservative alternative companies? Of course. In some sectors, though, it will be quite some time before there are providers of goods and services that cherish traditional American values. Small victories like the victory over Bud Light's wokeism will build over time. So the small victories really aren't that small. We are looking for a snowball effect. When you start to roll a small snowball down the hill, it builds and builds and builds until it's a mighty unstoppable force. That's our game plan. That's how the left built its empire, and it's how we are going to knock it down. A spiritual revival is upon us. Your neighbors are getting fed up with the woke nonsense. So keep at these boycotts to the greatest extent that you can. Reject Anheuser-Busch, Target, North Face, and the like. Focus on one battle at a time, and together, we will defeat wokeism. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. That's all for today's show. If you like the content that we are providing, please go ahead and subscribe to the channel, like the video, uh, leave a comment in the comment section. If you're listening to the audio podcast, go ahead and give us a five-star rating. Doing each of those things helps us tremendously, and it helps grow and multiply the impact of the show. And remember, one more thing, the CCP must be destroyed.